You're listening to the Women of Worth podcast, hosted by me, Audrey Bellis, founder of Worthy Women. We explore what it means to live and lead in integrity as women of worth. We're here today with one of my favorite past Worthy Women panelists, Anne Hodder from Hodder Media and Sex Positive Sex Ed with Anne. And welcome to Women of Worth. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. We are so pumped to have you. I was just saying before we started this recording how you are like one of our top five most loved panelists <laughs> from our audience and most tweeted wow. uh, when it comes to like one-liners and mm. everybody was like, man, she delivers punches. That's sweet. I am good with those sound bites. I don't know where it came from, but thank God I also do PR. <laughs> well, yes, right? So tell us a little bit about your businesses. Tell us about Hotter Media and tell us what Sex Positive Sex Ed with Anne is. Sure. Hotter Media is a PR, marketing, copywriting, and branding firm, sort of like a one-stop shop for a company who has a product or a service and wants to find a way to make it appealing to the masses or appealing to a really specific audience. I actually specialize in the sexuality world. So everything I do has something to do with sex and sex positivity. And that's on purpose. The uh, Hotter Media really works with sex toys, uh, sex toy retailers, adult boutiques, lingerie, lubricants, body care, anything that has to do with sort of an intimate sensual lifestyle. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean intimate as a euphemism for like doing it. It's really being connected with your body or with somebody else's body and different tools and services that can help you feel more comfortable doing that or facilitate the process. Sometimes we just need a little, we need permission to really act on our desires or have, you know, act on the the feelings that we might be having. And so there are a lot of really cool companies out there that make products or offer services that offer that permission. And for many of them, amplify the entire experience and make it a whole lot more fun. So it's been really fun. I've been doing that for seven and a half years and still work with a lot of sex toy companies, a lot of behind the scenes work, a lot of business stuff, connecting products with distributors or distributors with retailers or products with retailers. And so it's a different kind of PR. It's not necessarily trying to get Glamour Magazine or Cosmo to to care about a new product, but it's more about seeing someone is making something cool or someone is making something and it just needs to be modernized, sort of taken into a more modern, sophisticated, desirable direction to remain competitive with, I mean, there's so many sex toys and products out there, right? So, well, I don't know if you know, just in case no one knows, there are. I mean, can I just tell you, I remember like being 19 and me and all my girlfriends, like we all went to the Hustler store, Mm. which was a very special experience. In fact, my broker for my office now represents Hustler. So every Ah. time they open a new store across the country, she's the person responsible for scouting the location, making sure the transaction goes through. But back to my story, I remember like going there with my friends being like, oh my gosh, we're totally going to the Hustler store. Yeah, And I think it was probably maybe the most sexually overt member in the group. I think I lost, well, I don't think, I know. I lost my virginity pretty early. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely, I feel like every group always has that friend that you ask and you're like, well, what is this like? What is that like? (laughs) Have you done this? And I... I never really had a lot of shame about it. Now that I'm older, I'm recognizing that that's a very rare experience. You know, you talk about permission. I grew up in a mixed household, Catholic, Jewish, so interfaith. My mom is an immigrant. And like you, my parents never gave me the sex talk. Yeah. I think my dad, when I was like 13, was like, if you're going to go, if you're going to start having sex, you should go on birth control, but your mom's going to freak out. So if you need to, you can tell me. And it's okay. That's cool. And like, I remember my dad, like, 
whatever you need, you can tell me and you don't need to feel ashamed about it. And I mm. won't ask you a lot of questions. And I was like, that's cool. I had a friend whose older brother took me to Planned Parenthood. It was yeah, fine. Thanks. Yeah. That's so wonderful. That is really a special supportive story. Yeah. I don't hear a lot of those. Well, exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, you talk about giving permission. And as an adult, I look at the conversations that I have with my female girlfriends who are very sexually stunted. Mm -hmm. And I have a very close girlfriend, actually, who has very openly talked about like how her mom framed sex for her as dirty and shameful yeah. and disgusting and something that you only have to do when you need to have children. And it's a horrible experience. Right. And as an adult, she's a little bit like... You can't talk about blowjobs in front of her. You mm -hmm. can't talk about cum. You can't talk about anything because yeah. she gets all weirded out. And she's like in her 40s. Yeah, that's so common, I got to say. Well, that's actually why from Hotter Media, I've been – I was doing sex ed, like sex education, just on a sort of business level. And I decided in 2014 that I actually enjoyed working with people, helping them break down some of those shame barriers than I did working with sex toys. I and mean, then that's still fun and I'm very good at it. But the real fulfillment is seeing a an immediate result, talking to somebody about an experience and providing them medically accurate or socially conscious information so that they can kind of reframe some of the stuff that they're stuck with. And so I got certified from a few different places starting in 2014. And now Sex Positive Sex Ed is sort of a branch of hotter media that works directly with consumers or just with either an end user for a product or people who are seeking some kind of therapeutic coaching type service to move forward and to heal from some of these wounds that our parents or our guardians or our religion or our culture, wherever our values were initially instilled, there tend to be some really damaging values related to our sexuality given to us really young. And so yeah. now I work one-on-one -on -one or I work with group workshops. I work in rehabs and treatment centers, which is especially difficult but especially rewarding because there's a real shame, a real hook of shame in the addiction world and compulsive behavior world. So that's where that side of my business has been growing and it's, it's exciting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We talk about this is women of worth and our company is worthy women. And I like to tell people that everything you do stems from a belief of how worthy that you actually feel. When you feel worthy of something, you go out, you get it, you're confident, you know that it's an extension of you. It's of your essence. You're of service to the world. And you understand that. It's a natural experience. When you don't feel worthy, I, I think everybody does the too muches. You blame too much. Mm -hmm. It's somebody else's fault. You fuck too much. You eat too much. You do a little bit too much to numb out. And what's interesting in the world of addiction, we've had a lot of people tell us, and this is not by accident, worthy women and the topics that we discuss are pillars of content and how we approach them are very similar to a 12-step program. It's about cleaning up your side of the street first. Mm -hmm. It's about who you are in the world. It's about owning your shit. It's about taking responsibility for your actions, for making amends, for truly making it your best effort to show up as your best self mm -hmm. over and over again. Yeah. And that's very challenging for people because you can't talk about worthiness or even tell people why you're worthy until you've told them a time when you weren't and how you became worthy. No one ever just tells you that. They always right. have to backstep a little bit, which means we hear a lot of shame stories and very often they're rooted in sexual experiences, mm -hmm. assaults, things that many people struggle to talk about out loud. So yeah. for us, it's a very humbling experience to be able to hear those things from women and men, quite frankly. We have, a, we have a growing male audience. That's so exciting, which is really important. I know there are a lot of 
heterosexual cisgender men who, whether they are conscious of it or not, are really desperate for some kind of a stronger connection with themselves and with other people and to even better understand their fellow person. And that definitely in terms of heterosexual dating world, that is a big part of some of these men's sort of educational seeking. They really want to understand what women do want and what they need. What does it really mean to be a feminist? And is that something that they can get down with? And if so, what is the process there? And I think I find a lot of the work that I do, especially in some of the treatment centers, um, mostly because I just men don't seem to reach out to me on a one-on-one basis for coaching, but I get to speak with a lot of men when I'm in a group workshop. Most of them at first are like, what the hell? Who is this? Who is this feminist? Blech. They usually call me a bitch behind my back. You know, the usual type of rhetoric because I am that strong female that represents something that in our culture is vilified. Over time, however, once rapport is built, and often rapport is built very quickly by sharing and exchanging those shame stories, so they realize I'm I'm not there to shame them, tell them that they're wrong. Sometimes they think I'm doing that anyway, but they, they really understand that which is their own shame, quite frankly. Oh, of it's their it own is, shit right? coming back to them that yeah. they're unable to face. So they have to deflect it off and mm-hmm. say, Well, you're doing this to me. Yeah. You're doing this on purpose. And nobody can make you feel any way that you don't give yourself permission to. Sure. It's a lot of projection stuff. But what but the idea really is I'd help people hate themselves less, hate other people less. And in terms of this, you know, binary gender thing, I help men hate women less and I help women hate men less. And it doesn't mean that the feelings that come up from personal experiences are irrelevant. It's more like, how do we manage those experiences without letting them completely define how we now choose to behave in the world moving forward? Because if we do carry that around as a definition, it honestly is very burdensome. It feels very heavy. I experience it constantly. You know, I I don't have everything figured out. I just have some tools that I've I've learned that I have been so beneficial to me, I want to provide those tools to other people because I know how helpful it can be. And so that's what a lot of that, the the sex ed work ends up being. It's rarely about, you know, penises, vaginas, butts, and whatever, and condoms. It's, that's in there, but so to speak. But really it's about the feelings and the values behind who we are today and how they conflict with who we used to be. And that transition can be really hard for people, especially if we're really rooted in, like if we're really defined by a certain kind of value, whether it's our culture or religion, for example, can be really hard to break away from that. That's interesting. I experience that a lot. I oftentimes have audience members who go, oh, you must feel so worthy now. Mm -hmm. You must just have it all figured out. Mm -hmm. Please show me what, show me the way, Audrey. And I'm like, I don't have shit figured out. Are you kidding me? The little, (laughs) whatever you think I have figured out, maybe I have some of it figured out, but it's always a constant evolution. And just because you figure out one thing doesn't mean you're not still struggling with other areas. It never ends. I mean, it's like life, everything is a constant process. And what is your sort of, what you know about yourself and what's important to you when you're 20 might very quickly change once you're 21 or 31. And so it's, you never, life doesn't get figured out and then you're like, oh good, smooth sailing until the end, right? It's, it's, it never stops. And the minute you get complacent and think that the way it is today is how it's going to be all the time, the more you're setting yourself up for some major disappointment and some difficult transitioning down the line. 
Absolutely. Um, so I'd love to talk about your journey into how you got into this. Mm-hmm. And especially because I think there is an instant taboo when you hear things like sex ed, sexual experiences. And like you said, people think when you hear intimacy or intimate, they literally think like, oh, you and I'm sure people must tell you this. And I'll draw from a personal experience. I wrote an article for HuffPost Women a couple years ago, and it was called Stop Having Sex. I did it for a year. Mm-hmm. The article went viral and it had nothing to do with me not having sex. It was like my personal development year where I like publicly stated I chose to not date for a year and I chose to build my business and focus on my own personal development. But the headline, which they chose, not me, was very grabbing. It was of course. Click, it's clickbait. clickbait. Yeah. That's how it works. I actually had people who would send me like my office address was listed on my website And people sent me vibrators. Mm. And I used to have people that would send me messages that are like, well, are you just super horny now? Like, did you masturbate? And I'm like, what gives you permission (laughs) to ask me how often I pleasure myself? Just because I've publicly stated that I'm not dating for a year. Like you're drawing this conclusion that, you know, how far does that line go? I'm sure people make assumptions with you broadly. So I'd love to know what types of experiences that you've had, how you handle that. And really how you kind of stepped into this work and your own experiences of owning your self-worth. Sure. Well, self-worth is a really tricky thing. I mean, even today, it's a constant process of kind of reminding yourself that you aren't a piece of shit. (laughs) And same in the mirror once a day, like, yeah. you've got this in You're my right. Beyonce voice as I draw on my eyebrows. You're good. Totally. You're slay, girl. And sometimes those affirmations are really hard to get out because it feels like such a lie. But there's some research that I can send to you later um, that, sh- that shows the more frequently you do look at yourself in the in the eye, in a mirror and say things, it trains your brain, whether or not you want to believe it, over time, your brain starts to kind of absorb the positivity. There actually has been some you know mental health benefits with there. But, you know, I have my own struggles with that. But I think what's interesting is my journey with the whole concept of, of sex. I, I think I was really fortunate with my experience. I um, did not grow up in a household with very strict values. There was no real cultural designation. There was no religious cloud to sort of live in. Both my parents were recovering Catholics from what I remember. And so it was very void of religion. It wasn't against it. It was just void. And my dad was from England and my mother was from Long Island. And there was so there was just nothing really shared about people's ideals. So it was just like kind of figure it out on your own. I just remember at a really young age, just masturbating all the time. And I didn't know what that was, obviously. And kids a lot of clients don't like it when I say this, but, you know, we are born sexual beings. Oh, kids do that all the time. Little babies do it. I mean, like baby boys have erections constantly, usually when they're peeing. And so that's one of the reasons why if you're changing a diaper, you get peed in the face because his little tiny penis is just pointing in a different direction. And people are really uncomfortable with that because understandably so. But it's associating something that as an adult, we all immediately associate with just sex and virility with a tiny little baby. And that is not okay in, you know, in any culture, really. So we don't learn to be sexual. We are sexual. What we learn is is typically most often we learn that it's wrong at some point because someone else told us to. Right. Typically, uh, kids do. They touch themselves. They play with themselves. They scratch their butts in at the dinner table in school, touch other people's butts. Like they don't know. They just know if something feels good or is fun, they're going to do it as much as they can because that is the innocence behind childhood. And so the only time they learn that there's something to be ashamed of is if somebody walks in or notices and says, don't do that. What What are you doing? That's disgusting. Yeah. And that is, it takes one experience for that to make an incredible long-lasting impression. And that child will carry that little tiny notch of shame 
um, with them forever. I remember specifically a time where I was caught because I just was doing it in the living room and it wasn't anything like it just was like no biggie for me. It was just like this feels good and here's a comfy chair. I remember my mom walked in and she I don't remember exactly what happened, but I do remember that it was not a shameful, embarrassing experience. And I'm sure she was mortified and horrified and I'm sure I felt mortified and was like, what's going on? But there was no punishment. There was no finger wagging. And it was more just like, okay, let's use some logic here. This is something personal. Do it in a personal area. And so I was like, all right. And so I did, or at least I would find as much privacy as I could. And that really helped facilitate the way I explored myself. Because uh, in terms of like in my childhood, I was not, I grew up in a really specific kind of culture. I was a small town, New Hampshire. Everyone looked the same. Everyone had the same activities. And in order to feel like you fit in and survived, in my opinion, what it seemed to me in order to fit in and survive, you would join in, try to fit in as much as you could. And my parents being outsiders, they did not have the same ideal about skiing or field hockey as everyone else in the town did. So they didn't really give a shit if I played sports and I didn't really understand what the point was. But in order to have friends, that's what you would do. There weren't really other activities. Uh, um, yeah, so my mother was an artist, so I do art at home, but there, there weren't, you know, there wasn't anything around to explore art. So anyway, everyone was very slender. Everyone was really typically pretty, long, straight hair, and that just wasn't me. And I genuinely believed that there was kind of one way, one body or one way to look, and you can just work your way to get there. So as a kid, I just never really understood why I didn't really quite fit like that. So thank goodness I was forced to form a personality and humor. And, and that's, you know, learn how to tell stories and keep, you know, give people a reason to want to be around you because you on your own, you're boring. You're not pretty and it, nobody wants to, you know, date you or hang out with you. So make them want to be around by giving them something entertaining. That's what I learned. And I know a lot of people learn that too. As a result of that, I was not dating anyone. I don't know if anyone ever really looked at me in any way aside from here's the funny girl or the weird girl. So all of my sexual exploration was on my own time. And I really had a great time with it. it I was ex ex explored stuff. Like I was so conscious of what turned me on. And like, I don't even know where that all came from. I would go to the, and the, the way to learn, we didn't have the internet. So Believe it or not, the internet didn't always exist um, for these young people listening. I would go to the town library and go in the card catalog, look up the sex section, and all those sex books were in just one area. And it was kind of in a visible area. So I would just like sneak, I would look up where they were and I would do these very like non-casual, even though I thought it was super cash, strolls past the sex books, grab a couple, I didn't even know what they were, and I would just start reading them in the corner of the library. Mostly for edification, I wanted to understand and learn and sort of normalize what I was going through. And the pleasant side effect was I would maybe get turned on sometimes. And so I would have new fodder to like play with myself with later down the line. You know, that was my experience. I didn't have an experience, a sexual experience with another person until I was probably 17. And it was mostly on, I was the giver. I was giving a lot of oral sex. I think that's probably very relatable to yeah. many young women. I would say so. Yeah. I think because you learn that you are a service provider before anything else. Right. It's not unique to, to you know, cisgender women, but like it is a very common theme. I learned from there that I was worth and worth something and valuable for my skill set. And so even though I knew what to do on my own to pleasure myself, if I was with somebody else, it was very much like my power and my worth and the thing that I could prove to somebody else was how good I was at like sucking dicks. 
or touching things or kissing. And like, that was what I learned. And, and I had no other education beyond that, that there actually could be a different way of thinking. And I had no need to reframe that. And so that was the beginning of my sexual exploration was very rooted in what I could do for others. And I carried that with me in a lot of relationships. And even as I grew my own, you know, confidence and self-worth and all of that, it's still, I had no real exposure to the idea that actually the way I was thinking about myself sexually with other people was very one-sided. It was really easy to say, it's all right, I don't need an orgasm. It's because orgasm isn't the goal. It doesn't have to be. Right. But when you're young, it is. And so I would very, it, it was almost a relief to decline trying to have an orgasm with somebody else because I knew it wouldn't happen. It would take a long time. I would take up too much of their time, too much effort, but I could totally blow your mind. My last relationship that I exited from, the first person that I slept with after that was very much that experience where Mm. I was like, this is not that great and you're not really listening to what I'm telling you and how I would like this. So I would like to speed this up as soon as possible. How fast can we finish? And he was like, but did you finish? I'm like, don't worry about it. Doesn't matter. Because I'm done. (laughs) You're about to be done. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. Here it comes. And that was a very interesting experience for me and um, great guy, right? Mm -hmm. Like we'd been out for, we'd been seeing each other for a few weeks and he was awesome. And personality wise, we clicked, but the sexual chemistry wasn't there. And he was like, I'd love to see where this is going. And I was like, um, I can't. And it's because of the sex. Mm. And I was so like, for me, I felt like it was a very grown up moment to be able to say, this is something that we've tried to work on and I don't want to work on it more with you. Yeah. Like I don't see enough of this. And to be able to say that and not come up with some bullshit to be like, Oh, I'm just really busy in my life right now, yeah. which I think a younger version of me would have done yeah. and would have avoided. Totally. No one wants to have those conversations, no. but it's incredibly empowering to really just say your truth. And there, it, it is very possible to say your truth without hurting, without intending to be offensive. Right. We can't control how someone else is going to respond to our actions. All we can control is how we convey how we feel. And there is a responsibility there that I do think a lot of people don't want to take and don't know how. And so they don't bother. But there is a way to convey what you do or don't want or what you're not ready for or what you're just tired of in a way that really focuses on just you and your feelings without making it about the other person's failures or shortcomings. And that can at least facilitate a more respectful response from the person you're, you're sharing with. Yeah, he was, he had a great response about mm-hmm. it and he was like, I understand. And he actually said, I just don't think I'm as sexual as you are. Like, yeah. I'm just not like my libido is not like yours. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, and that was fine. And we're still good great. friends. That's so good. I just good. saw him the other night. It's so, I mean, how empowering was that to see how possible it is to have that kind of an exchange? And I, I think the biggest thing for me was that it wasn't bullshit. It was, it was an honest conversation that he responded to honestly. And we both mutually as adults, which is why I feel like this is a very adult thing, Mm -hmm. decided we still love spending time with each other. We were friends before. Let's stay friends. Great. And continue to do stuff. And I was like, oh, younger me would have not had this experience. Totally. Younger me would have had to block you on Facebook <laughs> and every other channel and be yeah. like, let me just avoid you till I maybe mm-hmm. run into you 
and be like, oh, how have you been? We do whatever we can to remove as much discomfort from our lives as we can. Yeah. And on the one hand, that's totally okay. If like your shoes don't fit, remove that discomfort and get different shoes. But if in terms of emotional discomfort, that's where we start to really like stumble. We don't really know what to do with that. And so as a result, that I mean, that's where ghosting comes from. We oh, ghost yes. because the fear, ultimately the fear of the other person's response from us having to, to you know, stand up and, and say what we need to say is so great that we would rather just completely disappear. And for those of us who have experienced being ghosted, that is one of the most painful things to have happen. I'm raising my hand too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's happened to me once and I was so surprised by it. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, well, and I actually wasn't sad. I, but I, I distinctly remember being like, this is pathetic. Yeah. Like you went through a whole lot of effort to get me interested. Now you've just disappeared. Mm -hmm. Sucks for you. Like you're lost. And when he did finally come around, my response to him was, I'm not interested. Like you can't own up and have an adult conversation with me. That's yeah. uncomfortable. It's a bad sign. Then <laughs> no thanks. It's a bad sign of character. Like, best of luck. Yeah. Good for you. I think yeah. for, for some of us, it, it can result in like, well, this is ridiculous. And this is exactly what I needed to know about you to help me go the fuck away. But, and for others of us, it can really feel like a blow to our self-worth. If our self-worth is right. very tied up in other people's responses and how we think other people perceive us, then it can make us feel like more of a piece of shit if somebody ghosts us in a way. As if that person respects me. This is the impression it gives. This person respects me so little that they can't even say, you know what? I, I don't think I'm into it. They can't even do a little teeny tiny text. They'd rather just try to disappear and then delete me from everything. And, you know, that that is something that has registered with a lot of people that I've, I've worked with, which is why dating can be so painful, like extra painful for people who are still trying to remove the source of their self-worth from the outside world and instead try to find it in themselves. And it is possible to get there. It's just hard. Yeah, I think for us, what we see with our audience is a lot of rhetoric around the word enough. So mm. if somebody gets ghosted, it's, well, I wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. And so they overcompensate. And interestingly, and we see this a lot when people talk about relationships with us, they repeat their relationships over and over again, trying to get it right and yeah. doing the same things that they were doing before and wondering why the cycle doesn't break. And I mean, who's not guilty of that? Oh, I am hand raised. It. Well, it's a human thing. It is, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to get it right this time. And then you know, similarly to myself, I had uh, two adult relationships where I looked back and I was like, oh my gosh, I literally duplicated this relationship. Mm -hmm. it, everything about it was almost the same circumstances. Yeah. And I, the second time around, was trying to change the response for a different outcome. Right. Because I was still stuck on the first one. It's understandable. Well, it's, I see, I look at relationships and figuring that out as sort of a roadmap. If, if it's familiar, if we know how to get to the grocery store, we're going to take that most of the time, that route the whole time because we know how long it'll take. We know what the obstacles are along the way. We know where to park. We know all of it. And so if nobody lets us know or if we don't become aware that there is maybe two or three other routes to get to that end goal, we're going to naturally follow that same part of the roadmap because that's because we are human beings. That's kind of how it works. But the next hard part is if we do find that there is another route to take, it's terrifying because we don't know if there are potholes. Could there be a bear on the way? Like we don't know what's there. And so that fear, even though we know it's probably a better idea to take that other route or at least just to give it a try, we still would rather not because we are so impeded by the fear of the unknown. 
And that's interesting because too often people will stay comfortable with women of worth. We talk a lot about integrity and that's oftentimes taking a very uncomfortable path. Oh, yeah. And what I love about what I've heard you speak about both on the panel that we did for Worthy Women and just following you socially and knowing who you are is that I feel like integrity is a big pillar for you. Yeah. And it's something that's kind of a through line even when you're selecting clients because again, you know, we hear things like intimates and sex education and sex toys and it has this instant negative connotation and mm-hmm. I'm sure to some degree that exists right as as the broad scope of the industry mm-hmm. and yet whenever I you know associate you with that I, I think the complete opposite I'm mm-hmm. like man where's this and want to kind of refer your friends and be like it's cool you don't have to be so sexually stunted I've got a solution for you sure totally I mean it's on the PR and marketing world the sex toy industry is kind of small in the sense that we're we're like a, a tight-knit family it is global but everyone kind of knows everyone because everyone has to work with everyone whether you're along the supply chain or you are a salesperson who's who's worked at several different brands you know that everyone kind of is familiar and and we are um, often all kind of uh, crammed together at conferences multiple times a year. And so you really get to know uh, the people behind a lot of the, the products themselves. And um, and it runs the gamut. You know, it's a long, it's just like with any industry. Honestly, it's like any industry. It just happens just to be a to different say, product. Every industry yeah. feels like a small world. Absolutely. And it's very, we joke that like Worthy Women was born of our parent company, which is Startup DTLA, which is for downtown, for being a big downtown, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It's actually very tiny. Totally. And we call it the circle jerk of tech people. Yeah. Yep. Because we see the same people at every event, <laughs> the same brokers touting the same deals. And they all know each other and they all just switch houses under different brands, but they've all worked together. Yep. And that's totally how it is with sex toys. And there are some companies that I probably will never work with, whether that's because of a, co- a potential conflict of interest or because our I think our values are different. And by saying that they're different, it doesn't mean that mine are better than theirs. It's just sort of that they're just different. We are on different paths and we have different goals, different kinds of intentional outcomes. And I like to work with companies that typically were started small in, you know, like type of, uh, Microsoft style, like in the garage. And it just sort of grew into what it was with some kind of socially conscious or just like giving a little bit of a shit about the world and the impact on the world. And so that means, you know, I can work with small companies that make lubricants and moisturizers in their kitchen, um, or I'll work with, you know, large scale manufacturers with owning their own factory in China who are in need of a reputation rebuild, who have in this sort of high school-ish type of industry, their reputation has been eroded from hearsay and gossip and and unfortunate circumstances in the company that we know happened. And so I like to come in and kind of get the full story and understand what's going on and then try to make a plan about how do we repair this relationship and how do we repair the relationships you have with everyone else in this industry and how do we build your reputation to get to a point where you feel like you are back as a big player or even a medium player. And a lot of that has to do with just sort of cleaning up the edges and seeing, you know, what are some of the things people are saying? Are they true? Be honest with me, please. And if they are true, what can we do to try to change that? And it doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. A lot of the times it takes years to change certain kinds of practices and, you know, using a different kind of material, for example, or doing a new packaging run that doesn't have a sexy lady on the front or whatever it is. As long as the intention is there to make those changes, I am more than happy to jump on and help. The thing now I find is it is it's not always easy to sell the return on that investment to some companies, um, which is completely understandable because it's not immediately tangible to be able to say if, if I come in for the next year or two 
and clean some stuff up and use the power of the media to change the conversation that's happening about your brand, you will absolutely see a positive change, at least in the conversation changing. It'll happen within three to six months. But long scale, monetarily wise, you will likely see a change in sales as a result of this new reputation. You just have to be patient and understand that it takes some of that time. And right. not everyone's down. And that's okay. You know, we are definitely in the world of internet online instant gratification. And I, you know, I don't take it personal, but I would rather, I'm, I'm no longer at the point where I'm chasing after stuff. There is an element of hustling in any kind type of entrepreneurial world. Um, so I, I definitely hustle. But at the same time, I have found certain kinds of relationships that have started six or seven years ago are still clients of mine today because partly the integrity thing, we knew it was a good relationship. And when we've seen results and we're ready to keep on moving forward and not sort of stay comfortable where we are. I love that. Staying comfortable where you are is something that we talk about in the office constantly with our team. And the running line is that we're always trying to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And mm. we push ourselves to a lot of limits. And sometimes that's for the growth. It's for the hustle. But oftentimes what I'm finding is usually it's for ourselves. Like we're solving our own problems and they just happen to be problems that other people often experience mm -hmm. because shame is really only ever rooted in a couple of different areas. We all only have so many areas in our lives, right? Romantic, personal, intimate, when it comes to family, friends, career, money, body, or all of them or parts of them. So we spend a lot of time exploring that and forcing ourselves to feel uncomfortable and truly trying to figure out what it means for us to be worthy women, quote unquote, mm -hmm. not just our name, but our, what does that mean for our audience? What does it mean to be a woman of worth? Obviously our title is because I'm obsessed with the word worthy and my own personal exploration of it. Sure. And I'd love to know from you, when you hear the word worthy or woman of worth, what makes you say, I am a woman of worth. I am worthy. What makes me a woman of worth, what makes me feel more able to believe that I am a woman of worth when I'm having a hard time is my willingness to be authentic. Ooh, the, I like that. The authenticity behind being, being able to say one day, I do not feel worth anything. I do not feel worth the cat food I fed Harriet this morning, who is my mm -hmm. adorable cat. I, I, giving myself permission and normalizing the fact that I can feel like a piece of shit one day and then feel like maybe a piece of platinum the next day and and understand that that's also okay and normal and and also that being confident in my what I know my normal is. I love that because so oftentimes people get stuck in not being able to be authentic mm -hmm. and the reality is is people only can ever relate to you when you are. When you're not they're buying the fake version of you. And then that relationship's going to erode fast. Easily because it wasn't yeah. it wasn't built on anything to begin and with. And we talked about that in that dating panel at, yes. at the Worthy Women panel because it, it it's the the scariest thing is being authentic because we might get it rejected or judged as a result. Right. But the payoff of being authentic is so much greater than just trying to cling on to short-term relationships as a result of you pretending to be something that you can't, you know, you're not really. And and it's exhausting to maintain that over time. And, and over long enough time, it's impossible to maintain it. So Anne, where can people find you? Um, you can learn more about Hotter Media at hottermedia.com. Um, sex Positive Sex Ed with Anne is at annhotter.com. Um, and I've got Facebook pages for it too. All of them have contact forms. So if anyone wants to learn more, they can just fill something out and it goes directly to me. And we will certainly link to that in the summary and recap of this episode. And it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to talk to you. Thank you. I'm Audrey Bellis, and this has been Women of Worth. 